We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Lisa Paleski. Here, Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, lots going on uh, on the planet, in the area, and we'll get to it just as uh, as quickly as we can. Feel free to jump into the commentary. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Hammerhead trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. All right, uh, the story, which is very fluid, and is, of, of course, we'll keep you updated every 15 minutes on the quarter hours with an update and then a top and bottom newscast as to what is happening. But uh, there's uh, been an explosion on the U.S. side of the Rainbow Bridge. The FBI are investigating this along with Homeland Security and, of course, uh, uh, RCMP and OPP and such uh, in the area as they try to figure out what has uh, happened here. And as a result of that, uh, all four border crossings in that area into New York State have been closed. And uh, I'm imagining will remain closed for a period of time till they figure out exactly what is uh, going on. It appears, and again, everything is very fluid at this time, and uh, we're only trying to bring you what has been uh, actually confirmed. Um, but it appears that uh, this is being investigated under the lens of, uh, of a terror-related activity. So uh, an explosion on the U.S. side in a vehicle. Uh, we're also getting reports of, uh, of a couple of deaths involved there as well. But again, uh, uh, very limited information and very fluid at this time. Uh, on the U.S. side, it appears the car was entering... Uh, the U.S. So I, I'm not sure exactly what all of that means. And again, this is very, very early on in the investigation. So very little is known. But the result of all of this is those uh, four famous border crossings that uh, we all use to get into uh, New York are, uh, in fact, uh, closed. However, the Detroit-Windsor border remains open at this time, uh, which is uh, uh, another note for those that are traveling. Of course, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday weekend and approaching in the United States. So uh, you can imagine with what they're dealing with, uh, with more people and uh, more traffic going through there uh, anyway. So we'll be monitoring that story and keeping you up to date as to what is going on. But right now, FBI and, and law enforcement on both sides of the border uh, investigating an explosion at the Rainbow Bridge on the U.S. side of uh, the border crossing there. And you, there's video footage of it, and uh, you can see extensive damage uh, there, but the story behind it still uh, up in the air. Uh, we'll try to find out more as, of course, the course of the afternoon uh, comes uh, around and, and, of course, be talking to various guests on this as well. So uh, something to be aware of, especially if you are in and around that area. Other things, uh, fallout from uh, the economic statement, which uh, or update, I guess, that we saw yesterday, 
And this is really, I think, starting to hit home for people. And we remember that, and you know, there's lots of politics involved here on either side. Um, but, you know, spend, 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 spending more than we need to spend, therefore causing inflation, therefore driving up interest rates, the pain and agony we've all felt through that. The Prime Minister saying these sorts of things take care of themselves, deficits, the economy, uh, that sort of thing. But, you know, those are the days... Uh, you know, when interest rates were extremely low, now all of a sudden interest rates shooting up. And th- this is just astounding when you stop to process it. When we're talking about billions of dollars or millions of dollars, sometimes it's hard to comprehend. But next year we're going to spend as much money uh, on servicing the debt, which means paying the interest, not paying down the debt, just paying the interest on the debt as we do on health care. So think about that for a moment, because we all know what our healthcare system has had to endure over the course of a global pandemic of the, you know, the last three years. So, um, you know, as we've all said during the pandemic, how much we would, uh, try to figure out what was wrong with healthcare, make sure it wouldn't happen again. Um, put it back to or, or, or get it to a, a system that we can truly be proud of. And now we're finding out that, you know, we have spent so much money on, I don't know, you tell me, saving the planet? I mean, come on. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it just amazes me to no end that we are where we are and we are going to spend as much to service the debt, pay the interest on the debt next year as we do on health care. As we do on healthcare, not to mention education, the military, what have you. I mean, it's just astounding at where this country has ended up. And everything's down except your costs and your taxes. You know, our productivity's down. Everything's down except for the amount of money you're paying. And the carbon taxes continue to go up, even though it's not proven to have any effect on our targets as we sit at 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gases. Can we not help in another way? And here's the result of just tax and spend, tax and spend. And the reason we didn't hear more of it, there's another, I don't know how many, 20, whatever added on to it, um, but it, it usually is a lot more. But it wasn't more because they finally realized they can't pay the bill. It's like the left runs up the credit card and then the right's got to pay it off. And it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And then when the the right pays as much of it off as they can, then the left screams, see, look, they're killing us. Let's get it back and spend some more. And off we go in the other direction. Like, it's just insane where we have ended up. And the fact that let this sink in, we're going to spend as much servicing the debt, paying the interest on our debt as we do for health care. That ain't good financial planning. I've been briefed by the NSIA and the Minister of Public Safety. Uh, CBSA, RCMP, and Transport Canada are all fully engaged in providing the necessary support. There are a lot of questions, and we are following up to try and get as many answers as rapidly as possible. Uh, We are in close contact with U.S. officials, and we'll continue to work closely with them. Uh, We will continue to be engaged. We will provide updates. 
Updates I can give right now is there are four border crossings that are right now closed. Rainbow Bridge, Whirlpool Bridge, Queenston Bridge, and Peace Bridge. Uh, additional measures are being uh, contemplated and activated at all border crossings across the country. Uh, we are taking this extraordinarily seriously. Uh, that is the Prime Minister, of course, commenting on an explosion on the U.S. side of the Rainbow Bridge uh, earlier today. And still very little information is known. It is still quite the fluid story, but let's get the latest from Phil Gursky. President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst and here now. Phil, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Yes. Hi, Scott. How are you? Good, thanks. As you see this unfold, what comes to mind? What are your first thoughts? Oh, God, there's so much. But I think it's really important to reemphasize what you just said, Scott, is that there's so little information now. And I've been reading some accounts on a variety of news sources, and there's inconsistencies in those, you know, sort of eyewitness views of what happened you know where the car was what direction it was traveling what speed kind of thing but um unfortunately scott you only ever have me on the show when it comes to national security so Mm. uh, my immediate thoughts are is it possible this was a a deliberate uh, attack i.e a a terrorist attack i've heard the language being used by some american officials they're treating it as a terrorist attack but doesn't mean that it was they're just investigating it, it as a possibility um and I just hope that uh, it was something, some freak accident, as it sometimes is. But, you know, when you work in security intelligence for 32 years and focus on terrorism, I have to admit that's where my mind goes first. Um, as you, I looked at other sources, uh, including news, those in the United States who uh, paint somewhat a different picture than the ones in Canada do, whether they're, you know, obviously waiting for confirmation and such. But uh, do we know exactly where the car did originate? Because although it happened on the U.S. side, we're hearing reports uh, from the, from Canadian officials or Canadian media that it was traveling to the United States. However, we're hearing some from U.S. media that it was originating in the U.S. and then went towards the border. Do we know anything there? I don't think so. And I, I was seeing some uh, reporting asking, like, you know, what was the license plate? Because, of course, if the vehicle exploded, I'm sure the license plate is in a million pieces right now. But can, there must be surveillance cameras. I'm sure there's surveillance cameras at the border. Can they pick up the car and what, you know, was it New York license plate? Was it Ontario license plate? We don't know that right now. All I'll say, Scott, is, you know, fingers crossed it did not come from the Canadian side because um, that would be serious. If somebody from our side of the border went across and tried to do something and it was intentional, um, our our American cousins will be asking us a lot of questions about, you know, what's happening north of the border. So let's, we don't know that yet, though. That's important to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, it's just it's a fluid situation and we have to wait for more information. We have to wait for the investigation to unravel. Uh, one of the things they're uh, they're looking at is if this is isolated, if this sort of incident happens, whether this or another, what are the next step for uh, next steps for law enforcement and for those investigating? Well, obviously, there's the forensics. They're going to determine, you know, exactly what was the explosion. Uh, I've seen reports. Was it a gas tank? Was it a VBIED, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device? Was it something else? We don't have the answers to those questions just yet. And if they have any ID on the vehicle, who did it belong to? Who was it registered to? Do we have any information on the owner of the car? Was the owner of the car known to law enforcement or security officials for any kind of reason, irrespective of what the motive may have been? So we're a long way from any answers, unfortunately. I wish I had more information, which I'm sure you do, um, so we could share with your listeners. But there'll, there'll be no stone unturned, because I, I think, Scott, right now, there's you know, there's so much tension, whether it's what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Gaza and Israel or what's happening with the upcoming U.S. elections. There's so many balls in the air now of people expressing grievances and angry. It, it could be a, one of a million things. 
And uh, again, we're just going to have to wait and see what the what the FBI and more importantly, the uh, the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is the U.S. counterterrorism specialist, what they uncover in the hours and days to come. Um, obviously, heading into a U.S. Thanksgiving weekend, uh, as far as we know so far, those borders in the Niagara region are closed, but Detroit-Windsor is still open. What does this do as far as a security concern over the next weekend? Well, we, we both know how important the border is, right? Um, whether it's the Detroit crossing or it's the Buffalo crossing, uh, it's the lifeblood for Canada uh, in terms of our economic relations with the states, in terms of trade, in terms of a lot of our produce, a lot of our the, the goods we get from our American uh, cousins. Um, hopefully, they'll determine what happened and that there's this is a one-off. It's not a, a first in a series of events. So the border can reopen again. I mean, you remember back in 9-11, Scott, once the borders were closed for a period yeah. of time, huge impact on our economy here in Canada. So let's hope that they can get some answers to the many questions that they have and that uh, we can get back to a state of normal. But again, this is far too early at this point to, uh, to make that call. And this is why the borders are being closed. I'm going to ask you another question you can't answer, Phil. Uh, the <laughs> fact that we it happened late this morning, I understand, in the in the 11 a.m. hour-ish, uh, and here we are, you know, 326 at this point, what we've heard and what we haven't heard, does that tell you anything? The fact that they haven't given us the all-clear, the fact that they're uh, continuing on, where we are, where we are, when do you expect to hear more? Well, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a great question, Scott. I, I Part of me says it's more complicated than it seems, and so they want to make sure they, they leave no mm-hmm. stone unturned in terms of their investigation before they make a statement. There's a lot of sense, as I said, there's a lot of sensitivity out there now in terms of community relations with all the things happening in the world. I I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Uh, they have to treat this very, very carefully because of the sensitivities. And let's just hope that they're just taking their time and making sure they've double and triple checked things before they make a statement, because you know as well as I do, if they come out and say it's X, Y, or Z, someone's mm-hmm. going to react to that. We've seen it already with what's happening in Gaza, with the protests in Canada, in the United States, around the world against Israel. So I think they're being extra careful because they don't want to set something else off, as it'd be my guess. But again, um, hopefully by the end of the day, we'll have more details on exactly what happened, who the people in the car were, was it intentional, was it an accident, was it targeted? And um, maybe we'll be talking about this at the same time tomorrow afternoon. I have no idea. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk, uh, Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, talking about the uh, very fluid situation at the Rainbow Bridge uh, continuing right now. Phil, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. Uh, obviously, the uh, fall economic update uh, revealed yesterday by the federal liberals and interesting headline uh, by Campbell Clark, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail. Are the liberals finally feeling the economic squeeze? And is the uh, obviously economic update, uh, does it reflect that? The headline is the liberals finally feel the squeeze set a new tone, uh, set a new tone for spending. And Campbell is with us now. Campbell, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. How are you? So far, so good. How are they feeling the squeeze? What's happening now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that shows you they're feeling the squeeze is they didn't add to spending the way they normally do in every budget and every fall economic update. The reason they're feeling the squeeze is there's just a lot of factors coming together that make more spending difficult. Um, By the way, feeling the squeeze was what Christian Freeland, the finance minister, said about many Canadians today. They're feeling the squeeze. And the government's in a tight spot now, too. 
the debt payments, the payments on the debt are going up because of higher interest rates. Right? There's a feeling that more spending could fuel inflation, so it would be politically controversial. Their forecasts for future years are are, are tight, so they don't really have room in you know three or four years for a lot of additional spending. So there isn't room to sort of launch new programs, and you know they are essentially trying to respond to a lot of public concerns without spending money over the next year or two. And there's questions whether they could spend money in the years three or four. And, you know, that's clashes with the way the Liberals have been doing things for the last eight years. Has this caught them off guard, Campbell? So I guess you have to say that, you know, they've seen it coming for some time, right? Interest rates have been high for a year and, you know, um, there have been fears that we might be rolling into a fragile economy. But, you know, in March, there was a budget that poured quite a lot of new spending out and new uh, programs, especially large tax incentives for incentives, excuse me, for uh, clean technology. So, you know, they, they the government had kept up its spending habits, saying that was necessary for the transition in the economy. And, and, and in that case, it was really necessary in their view because the United States was uh, put pumping out a whole bunch of subsidies for clean technology. And if Canada wanted to keep those plants or attract those plants, they had to do the same. But the point is, it's only now that it's really coming home to roost. Um, and, you know, there's just not a loom, lot of room to maneuver. Uh, are, Canada, are Canadians going to buy into the reasoning for changing here? I mean, it's not necessarily that we've done something wrong in the past. It's just now life's different, and now we have to change direction and all of a sudden go this way. Uh, are Canadians going to buy into that? So I, I guess the question is whether Canadians really wanted to see uh, more spending and more mm. um, uh, action of that kind. Now, there clearly is a demand in the public to deal with housing, especially in Ontario and British Columbia. There's, uh, you know, a lot of concern about uh, mortgage uh, renewals and interest rates. Um, So, you know, there is a public demand for action on affordability. Um, But I don't know if that would translate into people saying we really want more spending. You know, it is, in a way, uh, the effect of past actions, right? Because the pandemic spending clearly built up the debt. That's one of the reasons we are paying for, um, you know, higher debt payments that are crowding out other things uh, now. And, you know, there was a lot of continued spending when inflation was, you know, on the rise and the Bank of Canada was trying to combat it with higher interest rates. The government didn't pull back in 2022 or early 2023. So, you know, we are paying for some of those failures to show restraint earlier. Um, uh, and many may question whether they were fiscally responsible prior to the pandemic and before the, the spending was needed, um, uh, whether it went on too long or not, Other, obviously another debate. I just seem to... Uh, it's I, I, on I have, the same scale, though, you have to say. Yeah, yeah. I have a hard time seeing that you just don't see this coming. Yeah, I guess uh, the thing about it is how far back do you see it coming? Clearly in March, they felt they had no choice but to compete with the subsidies offered in the United States, at least from their point of view. Um, But no, there was, I guess, uh, some risk-taking, if you know what I mean, in in terms of not 
showing more restraint earlier and, you know, not saving up for any, but I suppose cutting, cutting, cutting back for a rainy day to make sure that you didn't have as high of a debt load, you know, when a, when a couple of years passed. And, and I think that is to a certain extent what their issues are, what their problem is. And, you know, the thing about it is because there's high inflation and high interest rates at the time that they're sort of coming into the squeeze from debt, yeah, that means that there are also a lot of calls for them to do more, right? Honestly, one of the things I think they're missing out on is, in terms of dealing with the the demands of the public, is, you know, for example, for housing, they could have done structural things to try to reduce the demand. You know, they could have uh, taken action to reduce population growth through temporary residence. You know, there's a lot of there's been a boom in foreign students, in particularly Ontario, mm-hmm. in the last five or six years and it's really grown in the last two they could have capped those visas on temporary foreign workers as well to try to keep the demand for housing temporarily lower but they chose not to do that i think it was a they probably saw it as very controversial but they didn't choose to do those sort of strong measures that could have dealt with some of the crises they're facing now that's in so many different aspects. That's a valid point. Um, uh, what about uh, the carbon tax, which is obviously a very contentious issue as we if families are struggling with affordability and such. If they're feeling the big squeeze now, what are the chances they're going to give tax dollars back? So, you know, um, the carbon tax, I think, for this government is not an issue about giving tax dollars back. It's an issue about sticking with their climate policy and certainly they have dug their heels in on there will be no more carve outs from the carbon tax, right? After the one that was done for heating oil, uh, they have may, been adamant that they won't go further for, for example, natural gas. And in fact, the environment minister has made it pretty plain that he would probably quit if the government tried to do that. Um, so I but think- is the tax is the tax actually happening cause, or, or helping because there's debate about whether it is and hitting targets or is this just become a revenue generator for the liberals? So it is not a revenue generator. They do uh, return the money. Uh, it is not something that ends up generating revenue to the federal coffers. Um, whether it is having a large impact on emissions is uh, another question. I mean. Emissions are going down per capita and they're going down as a rate of the economy and have been for a few years. But it's not clear yet whether the consumer carbon tax, the fuel charge that is paid on things like gasoline or natural gas heating, it's not clear how much impact that's having yet. Um, And that's a matter of some debate, I guess. But it's not, it's not a, that's not a revenue generator. It is a source of, some annoyance to a lot of people that have to pay it on their heating bills and at the pumps, but it isn't something that brings money into the coffers. Those checks that you get back for individuals are, in fact, uh, you know, more uh, as an aggregate than what they collect. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, Campbell Clark with his chief political writer for the Globe and Mail and his latest in the Globe and Mail, the Liberals finally feeling the squeeze, set new tone for spending. Campbell, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. 
Thank you. You too. So uh, many will debate, uh, and, and 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 our last guest had another opinion on it: whether uh, the carbon tax uh, actually does anything, whether it, uh, well, it certainly we're certainly finding out it doesn't help us hit our targets in any way. Um, what does it do? Where does the money go? If it's all revenue neutral, then how is anybody making any money on it? And how why is it costing us? So I guess that's a debate, but a new Leger poll shows how Canadians feel about the idea. And um, and you know what? It, it, when one part of the country gets uh, sort of cut out of favor, and that being Atlanta, Canada, for being exempt for uh, the carbon tax on their home heating oil for the next three years, the rest of the country is like, well, why not everybody else and why not everything that is needed uh, in order to uh, heat our homes in the winter, especially when oil is one of the most dirtiest forms of so. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, keep it well, uh, keep it well, Scott, and good to join you again on the program. I know, and, and you know, uh, sorry about your uh, your Winnipeg, your Blue Bombers there. You know what? It was a, certainly one very entertaining game, to say the least. I will say I'd rather talk about carbon tax than that game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I get it, Andrew. Let's move on. Uh, You know, this is interesting because this was sort of done as a way to, um, uh, I guess, depending on which side you want to look at this, either help those in Atlantic Canada or uh, help yourself in the polls. Uh, But clearly Canadians across the country have have, uh, very much a common feeling on this. Well, for for sure they do, and, and you know, and, and you you touched on it in your in your introduction there. Like it, it's in some ways a very odd sort of policy move for the government. I mean, the way it came out initially, it was sort of seemed to be just Atlantic Canadians were going to get the benefit of this, and then quickly it was like, well, no, it's everybody in the country that heats with uh, heating, uh, you know, heating oil, and as you noted, it's a it's a pretty uh, it's actually the dirtiest way to to heat your home, but. That aside, uh, you know it. It uh, you know if it was done to to provide households uh, a financial break uh, as we go into winter, well, you're giving a, a small fraction in Canada a financial break and leaving a whole pile out that heat with natural gas, which is a far more common uh, heating thing. Um, and, and it's not. Uh, so I think people are mad about being left out, and I think you've also. I think this government's angered people who were really concerned about climate change, feeling that the government sort of stepped back on this, uh, you know, this, this signature policy on climate change. And suddenly the, the government, after, you know, five years of telling us this was the key thing to help us uh, address climate change, and now they, they appear to be sort of peeling it back a bit. So I, I think from a political perspective, I'm not sure uh, Leger is going to put out some federal ballot numbers at the... Um, Next week, I'd be very surprised if we see much of a bump for uh, for the federal liberals as a result of this uh, as a result of this move. Are Canadians, you think, questioning themselves like, what are we doing this for? If apparently it's not working, and as you mentioned, peeling it back for some, I mean, what is the reasoning for it? Well, you know, I think first in this poll, we we actually asked Canadians, you know, how much do you understand, uh, you know, how the carbon pricing you know market and the in the carbon tax works in Canada. And, you know, th- this tax has been around and talked about for, I-, I think, close to five years. And we have 44% of Canadians say they have some understanding of it. Uh, 9% say they have a very good understanding and 35% saying somewhat. And 56% say they don't really understand it. So yeah. 
that to me is a problem. If you're trying to sort of position this tax in, in terms of what it's supposed to do, I think you're having a hard time. We've, we've done some polling, Scott, in terms of just generally in terms of how people feel about the tax as a means to fight to address climate change. And, um, you know, five, uh, four or five years ago, support was in the 60% range. And now you're barely cracking the 50% range, in, uh, you know, just in a general sense. So it's, uh, it's dropping. And I think it's, uh, it's a problem for the, uh, for the government in terms of making this a, uh, you know, helping Canadians understand its purpose and, and how it works. I don't think they've done a great job. Uh, many have said that everybody gets it all back anyway. Well, then why do it? And why are we feeling a pinch? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, we ask people like, you know, do you get the tax? Uh, you know, how many of you, uh, you know, your households, do you uh, receive a carbon tax related rebate uh, in your household? 36% said yes. So first yeah. of all, that's two thirds of the population going, well, I don't get anything. So yeah. that I think you can automatically assume they're not feeling that they're, they're, anything's being rebated to them. Um, so I think that's a problem. Um, and, and to your point earlier, again, in, in the introduction, like if this thing is supposed to be revenue neutral, um, it's not really clear then. Typically, our, our understanding of taxes is that we pay them to do something yeah. with that money. <laughs> not to and get it so, back. So, yeah, like it, it seems... You know, and we did some polling. Uh, I did some polling a couple of months ago on has the carbon tax on fuel changed the way you've, you've um, done certain things? Like, are you driving less? Yep. Are you taking the bus? And it's, it's not really changing behaviors. There you go. Andrew Ans, i got to cut you off there. Executive Vice no President, problem. Central Canada for Leger. Uh, Canadians, how they feel about the carbon tax, and they want the rebate and thinks everybody should get it, uh, at least two-thirds anyway. Andrew, thanks for the time. Be well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the news of... Uh, just the terrible experiences going on with the Taylor Swift tour in Rio de Janeiro, uh, a girl losing her life due to heat and, and, and other incidents that have happened uh, in and around that show. Let's bring in Eric Elper, publicist and music commentator. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm good, Matt. How are you? So far, so good. Your thoughts on what happened at the Taylor Swift show and, and, you know, one of a couple of events. I'm not sure how much promoters and the artists are involved in any of this, but what's your take on, on what happened? Yeah, it's psychologically so damaging. Um, there's so many things that go on when something like this happens. First of all, the, the woman that died inside the venue, um, the venue had a temperature of about 60 degrees Celsius, um, which is just unbearable. And with so far the reported price of bottled waters reaching anywhere between 15 and $20, the equivalent of Canadian funds, it just seemed like a sheer exploitation of that venue to ensure that they were making as much money as possible based on the fans that were there. Um, Taylor Swift has absolutely nothing to do with that. Artists can't control the food and drink and alcohol prices. They don't control the parking prices. Anything that happens inside the venue that um, that is already there when they leave, they just don't control. But somebody is absolutely, I think, going to end up paying for this. And so far, the father of, of 
of the woman is uh, having a lawsuit or at least threatening a lawsuit or just put forth one that doesn't mention the venue and the promoter, but not Taylor Swift. And the next step for the father is just to see how fast that lawsuit goes in, because the obvious option is to name Taylor Swift in that lawsuit just to garner the headlines and put pressure on the local government and the local um, venue in order to make sure that these things don't happen again, because quite frankly, they just shouldn't. Artists play all over the world, different standards, different laws in every place. How do you make sure your rear end's covered here and the fans are taken care of and, and we stay away from this sort of thing? You had something like this happen to you once and you will probably ensure to the, not only to your personal self, but the rest of your team that this doesn't happen again. In fact, when this happened in the late 1970s with the who and 11 uh, teenagers died mm-hmm. being trampled, trying to get a good spot during the general, the mission, first come, first serve um, seating arrangements. Um, Ohio actually banned general, the mission, first come, first serve uh, venues and ticketing for a number of decades. In fact, the WHO never even had any general, the mission seating after that show. When Pearl Jam had over a dozen people die at their festival in Sweden a number of years ago, it took them a long time to play any outdoor festivals that didn't have proper security. So unfortunately, there's really not a whole lot that the artist can do based on the venue, except if you're Morrissey from the Smiths, who refuses to go into any venue that has ever served meat um, in the last number of of weeks. Um, But really, I mean, all joking aside, when something like this happens, you just try to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And Taylor Swift did it. She acted pretty quickly, canceling that second show because the temperatures were just too hot. What's amazing about it is that I think we're going to hear about this more and more as climate change affects all of the outdoor shows and sporting events that happen around the world. Taylor Swift is a pretty powerful artist in the world, though. If there's anybody that can make change, and you said, well, you know, they they can't really do anything, but on the other hand, they can do some things. So uh, with someone who's a, such a powerful artist, can they, hey, if it's not up to this, I, I don't I don't roll. We don't play there. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to take a lot, though, but she absolutely has the power to a certain extent to say to her promoters and her managers, I want you to pick stadiums and arenas that will not sell any bottled water or any drinks or have constant free flowing water at water fountains, um, maybe no more than like $5 or $6 or whatever it is. Um, but that's actually curtailing um the, it's just profit margins. And I'm not so sure that yeah. a lot of venues will actually side with that. It's going to take Taylor Swift behind the scenes to say, I'm not going to play your stadium unless that you actually play fair. We saw this in front of our own eyes to the world during Woodstock 99, when food and, and alcohol and water prices were sky high and the kids, they, they just rampaged. They went violent and they started rioting over that, among other things. But yeah, I think artists do have the right to say, I will not play there. Um, and not just that, I think it's, you know, where, you know, what political side you're on, who owns the building. I think it's time that these artists take a little bit more responsibility for where their fan bases are spending money.
And obviously, just the size of these venues. I mean, you know, uh, the more people, the harder it is to control. Yeah, and, and you know, it would be so easy to say, look, let's just do it like movie theaters did after yeah. decades of not allowing people to bring in their own food and drink. You can now bring your own food and drink and water and things like that. But the fact is, though, that we as human beings can't really handle as a group that yeah. much freedom. You're going to have hmm. a lot of drug and alcohol abuse, and uh, there's just no way that that's going to happen. Eric Alper with us, uh, music publicist and commentator, commenting on the latest uh, Taylor Swift shows in Rio and uh, and the tragic accidents that have happened as a result. Eric, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, we've got Joe Warmington, columnist for the Toronto Sun, with us initially to talk about a different story, but I, am, I understand he's in Niagara at this point. Joe, are you in Niagara Falls? Yes, I am, and it's you know it's a very confusing story. So uh, sorry for everything being sort of upside down here, but we're trying to figure out just exactly what is going on here as we speak. But uh, I'm down right by the bridge and. You know, it's, it's very quiet uh, down here. It looks like it's still closed, and there's, you know, lots of uh, police and law enforcement, things like that. So it's, uh, it's a little bit of a confusing period of time here. Uh, we had played a, a report, Joe, from ABC News a little earlier on that uh, it appeared that the car was coming from Canada, went through an initial checkpoint, and then was going to a second when it sped out of uh, control. That's what we're getting out of ABC News. Have you confirmed or know anything about that? No, I mean, everything Everything is shifting around on that, and no one knows exactly what exactly, you know, which direction it came from. We've heard every different story. Everybody you talked to is a different version of events. And, you know, it went from being a terror attack to being something else. So it's, you know, it's just one of these things that uh, I guess we're going to have to wait and see until they clarify it all. But you know, obviously two people are dead, Scott, and two people are, are wounded or hurt. And so, you know, it's, it's a major incident here. And I think that's why we're here to try to get to the bottom of this. And we understand that it is being investigated under the lens of a terror activity. Have you been able to confirm any uh, of that? I, I, if that if, have you got that as new information? Because what, what originally that's what we heard, and then we've heard it's a New York State investigation, and uh, and not a federal investigation. The FBI is not involved, hmm. and so unless you've heard something new, um, that's that's. You know, in, in the time that we're talking now, the last few minutes, it's a New York State investigation again. But, like, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's got to be a lot. There's a lot of unanswered questions here. How did this? I mean, this car was airborne. Mm-hmm. It had engulfed in, in flames, etc. So, you know, it's not adding up. And, you know, I don't know uh, what we're going to, to do. But, I mean, at some point, they've got to let the public know exactly what what happened here and uh and so uh that's that's exactly where we're at now uh has there been any chatter of any sort of news conference or any sort of update to any of this i haven't heard that but i suspect that there will be one uh the governor of new york is on her way to the area here and i think she'll be briefed and i'm sure that she will have a news conference uh tonight and if she does and they let us across 
the border, if they do open it up and it isn't a terror event and they open the borders back up, I will go to it. But, uh, you know, I'll try to go to it if they let us across there. But, uh, you know, I, I suspect you're going to see that probably 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, something like that. Uh, obviously, you're on the Canadian side as the borders have been closed. Has there been any sort of, uh, or, or what have your thoughts, the fact that all of them, uh, all four of the main uh, borders in the region have been closed? We understand Windsor, Detroit is still open, and they have not reopened yet. So it's all precaution. I mean, in light of something like this happening, nobody's going to take any chances. I mean, it's a very unusual event, no matter what it is. And so, you know, I think it's just uh, just wise to make sure that, you know, everything is uh, looked after to make sure it's not what they fear it is. I mean, it, it looks and smells like a terror act. But, uh, you know, we have to have an open mind. And, and that's what we, you know, why we come down to things like this, just to see what it is. But um, obviously, uh, you know, I'm not, I wish I could help you better. But um, no. it's, it's just one of these things that's kind of fluid. But I can tell you that just, you know, being here at the bridge now, it's basically the bridge is shut down and there's, you know, there's lots of police here, but it doesn't, it doesn't have a terror feel to it in terms of, uh, you know, like on this, on the Canadian side. So, you know, it's not like uh, we, I've seen it, I covered 9-11 and I was in Oslo in, um, you know, over there in Norway when that happened and you really knew just by the amount of guns on the street and police and law enforcement, that it was a major thing. It doesn't feel like that here. The, the bridge is shut down and that's pretty well it. It looks like, you know, it's something like that. And of course that's, it's kind of shifting and changing every few minutes, but that's from what I can tell you, that's it now, but don't take it to the bank. Cause maybe yeah. you've got uh, access to wires that I don't have. Cause I'm sort of on foot here. So, you know, it, it could be, you know, this is what I'm seeing, but who knows exactly what's happening. It's that kind of day. What about traffic? What's the traffic situation like around the border? Have people turned around, gone the other way? Is the message out, or is no, it still stacked? It's just dead. It's dead around the border. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing happening at all. Um, but I've got to go, Scott. I apologize. Um, no problem. No problem. But, no. Uh, yeah, I did. I did the best I could here. If I hear anything more, I'll make sure that uh, that I you know email your producer and uh, and, and if you if you something major, you want to call me back. I'm here. All right, Joe. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the time, Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun. We're actually going to talk to him about a different story. Uh, I won't even get into that. Um, in in regard to a column that he had uh, written, and then obviously uh, trying to get a hold of him for that, he's uh, actually in Niagara Falls trying to get to the bottom of this story. So uh, offered to come on and at least update us on uh, what he is on that side of the border and again you know you hate to almost repeat information because some of it seems to be very conflicting on you know as far as where the car was coming from whether this was some sort of accident whether this was a terror related activity whether it is still being uh, investigated as a terrorism related activity Um, you know I think after talking to Joe we probably have more questions than we do answers now because there's just various reports that are different and you know if you're you're going online and, and, and looking at the various 
news outlets. The story is a bit different in the United States than it is uh, in Canada. And we played that one report for you a little earlier uh, from ABC News and what they were reporting. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, difficult to figure out at this point what is going on. Uh, but certainly what we do know is that uh, all the four area borders uh, in and around uh, Buffalo and Niagara Falls, uh, those four main bridges are closed and are remaining closed at that at this point. Uh, as Joe Warmington said from the uh, Toronto Sun, obviously, you, you know, you think when borders are closed and when this would have happened earlier, they said at about 1120 this morning, the bridges would have been packed with people coming to and fro. Uh, clearly, they've done a great job of getting everybody out of there. And now he said virtually the uh, the, the borders are, there's nobody there. It's just, it's, it's empty. And all you can see is what is going on and the flashing lights on the other side of the border as that can, uh, continues to get investigated, uh, by U.S. authorities. So as we find out more, uh, we will certainly pass it along to you. And hopefully we will find out a little bit more. And there is some sort of news conference coming up before six o'clock and, uh, at least find out what happened. If in fact this was something involving terror or, uh, if, um, who knows what else, uh, going on as uh, obviously somebody driving erratically and um, and it is what it is a car exploding and two dead at the border on the US side and that's really all that we know that uh, we can confirm at any time but uh, it certainly looks as if um, uh, things are going to be remained closed for a while and when we hear any more word on that we will let you know Joe, uh, Joe Warmington with us from the Toronto Sun at the scene <laughs> Fiscal update yesterday, the Liberals delivering that. Um, uh, a bit more spending, which, you know, I'm not sure how much more the Liberals can spend uh, when it's costing us as much to service the debt as, um, well, it will to fund health care, which are some of the figures being thrown around today in the fallout of the uh, fiscal update that we got yesterday. A lot of it repeated, stuff that we've heard already. Uh, what does it mean when it comes to housing and you or your kids looking for some place to live. Murtaza Hader with us, professor, data science, real estate management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thank you, and hope you're doing well, too. Murtaza, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. And and what, what are your thoughts on this update that we heard? Anything new there? Anything strike interest to you? Yeah, there is more money being, um, I'm strictly speaking about housing, there's more money being earmarked for uh, housing construction, for rental housing construction. Um, the government is setting aside some few more billions to um, in, use it as loans and other incentives to um, increase the pace at which we've been building housing, especially rental housing. So, yeah, the money is there. Um, it's just that you have to ask yourself um, how much more money we need to get the needle moving on rental housing or all housing? And the answer is we need a lot more. But then you say, if you need a lot more, then does any money from government help or is it useless? And the answer is it's useful. Um, if it gets um, any any new housing constructed, it's better than not doing anything. Uh, we are in a very tough situation. The situation is what whatever the government does is good, but is it sufficient? And the answer is no. And um, and that's where we are stuck. We, we need to build a lot more. And uh, the government is reflecting on it, it's acting on it. But again, um, it's it's hard to say if it's going to be, if, this is certainly not enough, but it's hard to say what will be enough. 
Uh, we hear the term a lot of, of affordable housing, to which, uh, you know, I kind of shake my head because is anything going to be affordable uh, until the supply is increasing uh, to at least keep up with the demand? So what does affordable housing mean? I mean, how do you build an affordable housing? Because even if you build a small, modest home of a 1,000 square feet and there's only 10 of them built, but there's 500 people waiting to get in, that price is going to go up pretty quick. So does affordable housing mean subsidized housing? Well, this is a very good question. Um, um, I can't speak for the government to, to think about to, to say what they mean by affordable housing. But in my mind, um, affordable housing it has to be built in a way that it prevents future spikes in the price of such housing. And there are business models already available where housing is built uh, to be affordable, and then it's built and the ownership rights are such that the buyers can't flip it for profits. If they bought it something as cheap, they can't go around and 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 um, sell it again, and then it's no longer affordable. There's, I've known about a company called Options for Homes, where they they do such uh, construction and they keep the construction constructed units prices significantly lower than the others by using techniques um, that are basically not spending much on advertising, not adding too much frills to the units, and then they are relatively. Oh, significantly cheaper. But then they are, the ownership is structured as such that you can't buy it today and then turn it for profit tomorrow. So we have to do a lot more of these. We have to enable uh, um, uh, not-for-profits to build housing. We have to enable uh, for-profit constru- uh, constructions on maybe donated land by governments and other public sector entities or even religious institutions, but in a way that ownership restricts flipping of those units for profit later. And the same is the case for building rental construction, where um, the, if the governments are giving tax breaks or if the governments are making it cheaper for the builders to borrow money, then it should be the case that the owners would guarantee that they will keep these units affordable for, for at least 10, 15, or 20 years. This is something that was done in Germany after the war, where they built a lot more housing with, with the help of private sector, gave all types of incentives to the private sector, but they required the private sector to keep those units affordable for 15 to 20 years. All these business models exist. We just have to have the will to do it. How do we, that my next question, Murtaza, how do we do that? Uh, Why aren't we doing that? Uh, You know, it seems like we've got the wrong template. I think the first is realization. I, I think the liberal government has bought into wrong advice in the past. Um, they were appeared to be leaning more um, in line with the crowd that said it's a demand problem, not a supply problem. We don't need to build more. And that is why you would see that even the prime minister at one point said housing is not a federal government concern. This was just recent, a few months ago. Yeah. And then you had a housing minister who was saying we are building a lot of housing. And then he mentioned 400 units. That's a previous housing minister. But I, I, have, I am hopeful because the current housing minister seems reasonable. And he's he's actually making bigger strides than before. So it looks like the current leadership on the housing file is aware of uh, the challenges, recognizes where the problem lies, and is taking decisive actions. It's just a few months for the minister to be in, in the portfolio. So I'm hoping that if he continues like this, there will be bigger and bolder plans in the future. 
Mark Zaza Hader with us, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and where we are with housing after a fiscal update. Mark Zaza, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we're hearing that uh, three of the border crossings into New York State have opened the Rainbow Bridge still closed in regard to the explosion earlier there uh, today. And and then from then on, it's pretty much conflicting information, uh, depending upon what side of the border you're on, as to uh, where things are moving heading forward. Let's try to get an update from Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News and is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So, Reggie, what is the U.S. media saying about what has happened at the Rainbow Bridge? Well, it's not even the U.S. media here, Scott. We There's a there's a, a press conference underway right now, uh, and I was listening j- just before we started talking here. Um, Governor Kathy Hochul, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, has uh, just left the, the, the podium uh, making a comment to say that this is not um, a terrorist accident. There's no uh, mm-hmm. terrorist incident. There's no evidence uh, of a terrorist incident and no one has been spotted in the kind of dark corners of the internet taking any kind of credit for this. With that, Governor Hochul is also not calling this an accident. She's calling this an incident because she says the vehicle was traveling at such a high rate of speed that there's no way to identify what the intent of this driver was, whether it just happened to be, you know, whether it was a medical incident or whether it was something else. They're calling this an incident. Um, and and beyond that, uh, the investigation is still obviously preliminary. So you had U.S. media earlier, some U.S. media saying that there were terror angles to this. Mm-hmm. We're now hearing from the officials that that's simply not the case. Uh, do we know anything about where the vehicle orig- originated from, where it was heading to? Last thing I heard the governor say uh, before we started talking was uh, answering a question linked directly to that. And the question was, did the vehicle originate at a, uh, at a casino that is nearby the border? Um, and the, the governor said that there is you know, evidence that suggests that the vehicle may have come from in and around the casino. She wouldn't call the people that were inside local, saying that they may have been from somewhere in western New York. Um, it's possible that it may have started at the casino near the border. And the secondary part of that question was that the vehicle was headed to Toronto. Um, the governor stopped short of saying that, you know, the vehicle was intended to go anywhere beyond where it, it where it wound up. Um, but for all intents and purposes right now, this vehicle may have started its journey only a couple of hundred feet away from this border, because if anyone knows where the Rainbow Bridge is, they know that there's a casino just a couple of blocks away. Uh, so it appears that this car originated on the U.S. side then. Is that accurate? That, that's at least that's the information now. There was some right. some reports that had come out earlier in the day that the vehicle may have entered the right. United States. But from what we understand from, you know, looking at the maps in and around the border, uh, you know, if it was coming from the vicinity of the casino, kind of racing down Niagara Street and possibly trying to make a left down one of the side streets and, and, and you know, missing the turn or, or whatever the incident was, um, it wound up in the arrival side of what the U.S. border uh, right. would be for Canadians coming in. So right. it, it, it didn't start in Canada. It appears, it appears yeah. to have started inside the U.S., uh, and anything more about the occupants or anything that was found at the scene? So, again, there were reports earlier in the day that there may have been uh, uh, explosives inside uh, the vehicle. And look, I was talking to to White House officials about this and they were cautioning, saying, look, don't 
don't kind of start walking down these paths of saying terrorism, of saying that there were explosives in the vehicle because the information simply isn't there. And officials, at least till a couple of minutes ago, were, were kind of reiterating and, and, and parroting that, saying, look, nothing was found uh, in the vicinity of this car. Um, and as for the occupants, uh, the investigation obviously is still underway. Officials are not releasing um, the identities uh, of the victims here. Again, it had been conflicting whether it was one, whether it was two officials saying that there were two people that were killed in this incident, along with um, a border security officer who was injured in the incident. But beyond that, because again, this this investigation is still in its infancy, um, there's very little that is to be known about kind of the lead up to and people involved with uh, this explosion. Is the FBI still actively involved in this investigation or has it been turned over to local police? So it's still a broad investigation area. There's local police, uh, CBP, the, the, the border division is still involved in this, and JTTF with the FBI is involved solely because uh, there's a lot of unknowns uh, about kind of what led up to and the incident involving this. And because it happened at an international border, obviously, there's going to be some buy into from uh, from from Canadian uh, authorities, officials, police, uh, as well as they work in tandem with each other. Uh, we do know that that some terrorism experts uh, and the kind of related personnel, some of them have been turned away and, and kind of recalled to, to not need be needed at the scene. Um, but at the end of the day, there, there's a lot that that isn't known. There's a lot that may never be known. And that's why there are still so many agencies working collectively with each other to try and get some kind of answer um, to what happened and, and bring a sense of ease to the people who live in this community, who are dealing with this, who have been dealing with this. Uh, and that's my next point, Reggie, is that, you know, lack of information breeds assumption uh, moving forward. When will we know more, do you think? Has there been any sort of uh, chatter as to when there might be an update? No, I mean, look, the update is happening right now. I'm sure information is going to come out over the next, uh, you know, if not the next half hour, the next few hours, but it may be bits and pieces of information because this is going to be an extensive scene. Uh, the governor said that the the range for where some of this debris landed, um, you know, extended, you know, a, a hundred feet across several different um, you know, lanes or toll lanes that are at, at the border there. So it's unclear when answers may come here. Um, I think that the reason that we saw such a heightened response to this, Scott, is because in the weeks since um, what happened on October 7th uh, and in the lead up to the Thanksgiving holiday, there's this, been this real push that's come across from authorities to Americans to say, look, there's going to be a heightened sense of alertness and security um, at key areas around the United States. And of course, a border obviously is one of the most heightened areas for security. So that's why there was such a response here, because this is a country that's been walking on eggshells for the last couple of weeks because tensions have been so high. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend approaching, uh, obviously high traffic. Uh, you're going to expect slowdowns at borders as a result of this. Is that what you're saying, basically? Yeah, I mean, look, there's going to be slowdowns at the borders regardless. This is the busiest yeah. travel day of the year. That is why there was so much concern here for what was going on at the border, the concern and talk about what may have been happening at the airport in Buffalo that 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 obviously wasn't happening. The airport says that it's it's open and running. But when you have so many people collectively in one spot at the same time, uh, there is a concern here. And there's a concern at any point during the year that something could happen. And that's why when this incident took place on a busy travel day heading into a holiday as the United States has been talking about increased security presence at certain points across the country, um, that's why you lead to that's why you wind up um, in these kinds of situations. And, and when answers are available, you know, authorities will give them. Some people will take them. Some people won't. But until then, um, you know, assumptions can only make things worse.
Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, giving us the latest on what has been happening at the Rainbow Bridge on the U.S.-Canadian border. Reggie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. The government of Israel has reached a deal with Hamas, which will lead to a four-day ceasefire uh, sometime on Thursday in order to return hostages and get aid in. What does this all mean? What's the deal? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School and as well University of Toronto. Uh, to talk more, Jack here now. Jack, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Oh, for the longest time, Jack, there was no chance of a ceasefire. How do you explain this now, or at least a pause, I shouldn't say ceasefire, but a pause uh, or a four-day ceasefire? How do you explain this happening now? Why now? Well, Israel has been under considerable pressure, both domestic and international, to uh, pause its military operations internationally because there's alarm at civilian casualties. Domestically, because a pause is seen as the only way to purchase the release of the hostages. The problem here is that Israel has two goals in this conflict, and they point in opposite directions. One is release of the hostages, and that dictates uh, stretching out the military operations, negotiating a longer and longer pause. The other is the military destruction of Hamas, and that requires a sustained and unbroken military action. So there's a bit of a dilemma there. Uh, many were complaining if there was a ceasefire or pause that it would just allow Hamas to reload. Is that accurate? Uh, possibly. A lot depends on the details. For example, will uh, Israel maintain control of the border crossings? Will it be able to police what goes in and out of uh, Gaza? But uh, a pause actually gives both sides some opportunities, opportunities to strategize, to redeploy forces. My hunch is that it probably favors Hamas, although we won't know for sure until, the, uh, until a lot more is known about the internal dynamics of this conflict. So what's the deal? What do we know about the deal for hostages? We understand 50 of the 240, um, and what does Israel, uh, prisoners released, do we know how many? Uh, we know uh, uh, 50 for uh, 150. Uh, we know that uh, all of the hostages involved are women or children. So uh, if you're an adult male, you're, uh, you're out of luck. Uh, we don't know much more of the about the details of the uh, of the pause, and uh, the devil is always in the details when it comes to these things. Fifty for one fifty doesn't sound fair, is it? Uh, no, but then again, uh, Israel has, in recent decades, had a a displayed a willingness to uh, engage in disproportionate concessions to uh, buy back the security of its uh, its own nationals. And in this sense, uh, the Netanyahu government is part of all an established tradition. Will Hamas uh, uh, stop for four days and let aid get in? There's always concern in situations like this that aid ends up in wrong hands. Well, they will. Uh, I, I suspect they will probably try to uh, ensure that, along with the aid that gets in, uh, is uh, material that could be of. Of use to them. That's why it's crucial that uh, that Israel continues to maintain control over the border areas. How does Hamas deal with the Palestinians after the dust settles here? What's the plan? Uh, I don't believe there is a plan. Uh, Hamas exploits uh, Palestinian suffering. The more that the Palestinians are displaced, the more Palestinians who are, who are killed. 
uh, the more international criticism is leveled at Israel, and that part of Hamas's game plan, try to turn Israel into a pariah, regardless of the cost to the actual Palestinian people themselves. Why so much protest in other parts of the world if Hamas isn't doing anything for the Palestinian people? Why are Palestinians not directing their anger or their concern towards Hamas and, and the life they allow them or don't allow them to lead? Well, it, it really shows a certain uh, failure of, uh, of logic on the part of those who, uh, who adopt that attitude. I mean, Hamas is uh, quite cynically using the, uh, the Palestinian people, and it's unapologetic about doing so. It believes that the more the Palestinian people suffer, the better for its cause, which is to turn Israel into an international pariah. Surprised, then, by the support they're getting here? Uh, disappointed, but not surprised. Why is that? On, on, in certain quarters of the left, support for, uh, for uh, the Palestinian cause, even extending to uh, tacit uh, winking and nodding at Hamas's atrocities, has become an all-too all familiar pattern of behavior. Will this be an opportunity for Palestinians, or is this just, you know, this is just uh, nothing but negative for them? I don't see any any real gain for them. They're they're still stuck in a war zone. They're still uh, being used as human shields by Hamas. So I don't see any upside for the Palestinian people here. If they're still being used by Hamas for human shields, again, I'll ask the same sort of question: Why are why is there so much support here? Because it seems as if uh, we're blaming Israel rather than blaming Hamas, who seem to be putting them, meaning Palestinians, in harm's way intentionally. Well, Hamas has been able to uh, to quite adroitly manipulate uh, popular sentiment. On the one hand, it's uh, it's open and using the Palestinians. On the other, it's posing as their champion. And a surprising number of otherwise intelligent people are taken in by that act. Wow. Uh, Netanyahu says that the war will continue after the ceasefire. Uh, where do you see this going? I think it will continue after the ceasefire, although the ceasefire may be drawn out by the release of more hostages. But... Uh, Netanyahu has really pinned his colors to uh, the military destruction of Hamas, and I don't think he or his government can retreat from that. Uh, is it safe to say that at least if we're making agreements that we're, we're, th there's light at the end of the tunnel, or, or do you, is the, the idea that this may soon be coming to a close, especially after the comments from the Israeli prime minister, wishful thinking? I think that's wishful thinking. I think we're, we're in for a protracted conflict in Gaza. And what about the people that are fueling Hamas and the world's reaction to that? Is there any anger directed there? Uh, there the only anger I see there is unfortunately directed towards Israel, and, and that's not likely to change. One of, the, <clears throat> one of the problems for Israel is that the longer the conflict draws on, the more intense the pressure on them to uh, adopt a permanent ceasefire. Is anybody talking about what this will all look like once the dust settles? Who goes where? Uh, what happens to Gaza? Uh, there is probably some discussion going on between Israel and the United States behind the scenes. I mean, there's already been talk about uh, what will happen after Hamas is ousted and about the possibility of a Palestinian authority tutelage over Gaza or a U.N. supervised government. 
How so long those be- discussions are taking place. How long before Israel gets a gets a handle on this, or will they? Uh, I think it. I think it could be months. All right, Dr. Jack Cunningham with his PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Good news. Three of the uh, Niagara area borders have opened. The Rainbow Bridge uh, obviously still closed after that explosion uh, with a car earlier on today. And the governor saying uh, no need to be alarmed at this point. So still waiting for more details. Uh, but at this point, uh, the one, uh, the Rainbow Bridge border crossing still closed. Uh, the rest, the, uh, the rest have reopened. All right. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley show. You can hear him after the six o'clock news and in your read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Uh, You know, a little dicey situation throughout Uh the course of the afternoon while we tried to figure out what was going on. I think we still really don't know what is going on. Uh, But however, it seems that the situation has been neutralized and they're opening up the other borders or have, which uh, obviously is a good sign. But always scary when that stuff happens, especially heading into a long weekend. Well, I mean, look... There was plenty of reason and circumstances to be worried about it. Again, it's holiday weekend down there and the the fact that it's the border and with everything going on in the world right now. And I mean, I don't think that it – there may be times that you would point to a thing and say, oh, everybody overreacted. I think there was lots of reason under the circumstances to to, almost to assume that it was bad and then be relieved that it's – well, it's still bad. I mean, people died, but to relieve that it's not what we thought it was. It'll be interesting to see uh, when more information comes out exactly what the situation is and in response to it, whether, you know, we've learned anything about these sorts of uh, events or not. All right. Something that stood out to me today and yesterday, uh, the fallout from the uh, economic uh, update that the federal government gave. And, and you know, it's hard to put into context numbers and billions and millions and trillions and, and what have you and how much everything is costing everybody. All we know is it costs a lot to live and, and put food on the table and a roof over our heads these days. Uh, but but a new stat coming out, and it's it's not only Pierre Polyev that's, that's preaching this, but it's come out in news organizations as well, including uh, – uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Anyway, um, the fact that uh, next year we will spend uh, as much on servicing the debt, which is not paying down the debt, but just paying the interest as we do in healthcare, especially at a time when uh, the healthcare system's coming off a beating with the pandemic and we're all going to help it. And now we realize that forget healthcare, we're paying more just to service, just to pay the interest yep. on the debt. Yep. I think that's that's going to resonate with Canadians. I, I, I hope it will. But there are, look, all through this time where the government has spent its brains out, there are people who go, oh, you know what? If if you compare this to household finances, it's wrong. They can do whatever they want and blah, blah. And okay, it's not exactly the same. And I grant you, it's not exactly the same. They can print money. They can do other things. But there's been almost in some corners, this idea, this suggestion that spending money like the federal government has is, doesn't come with a cost. And I'm talking a cost even beyond just the pure dollars that that we're not facing a payment due at some point down the road. And yes, now take, so they say in five years, we will be paying $61 billion a year. That means that we have 40 million Canadians right now. 
That means every single Canadian per year, man, woman, child, every single Canadian is on the hook for $1,500 a year just to pay the debt interest. That means that if you have a family of four and you're paying your taxes, the first $6,000 are not going to any useful program. They're not going to hospitals, roads, healthcare, dental, CPP, nothing. They are, it is simply going to the banks to pay off the debt that we have. $6,000 in a family of four. You tell me how that is helpful to anyone. And, and Scott, the other, the part about this that really blows my mind when you hear this number is if this was, and again, I get when people say this is not like the same as a family budget, fine. But if this was a family budget and one of the things, if you were having this kind of debt, any financial planner, bring on Don Fox, bring on any of the financial planners we have on the station. And the first thing they would say is the thing you got to do is start paying off your debt to bring down those payments. I have heard nobody even mention the idea of us starting to pay down our debt or reduce our debt. It, it almost as if we've now reached a point where, well, let's just try not to grow it anymore, but we're going to live with it as it is. That that's to me, that's a horrendously devastating position to be in that we are now theoretically, potentially looking at paying $1,500 per Canadian per year forever for nothing. That's outrageous. When interest payments equal health care transfers, we yes. owe our kids an apology, says Don Martin from CTV. And I mean, if that I doesn't agree. drive it home, if that, and you know, it's all about the boomers doing this and killing the millennials and every well, sense of opportunity. It's hardly that. It's like, my yeah. goodness, it's like, we're, we're in hell, Scott. Okay. So I'm I glad mean, it's amazing. I'm glad I didn't realize that you were being facetious there at the beginning when you said about the boomers, because look, boomers have done a lot yeah. of things and Gen X has done a lot of things. This is, and, and I, like, I don't want to be political about it, but this is, you will remember that it was not very long ago that our prime minister acted stunned when he was asked a question on the steps of his house during something about spending. And someone said about, well, what about the debt you're accruing and the interest? He goes, interest. Do you not see that interest rates are at an all time low? He was stunned that the question was asked and it was as if, are you a moron? This never will change. Well, look, it has changed. And this prime minister, and again, I'm not trying to make this political. This prime minister decided that interest rates were never going to change, that we would never be on the hook for this. And when they did, there is no off ramp. There is no path for how to get out of this. So all, what are we doing now? We're spending more next year instead of even having his finance minister say, geez, Louise, time to pull back time to re we're spending more. We're building more debt next year. This is, it's an astonishing lack of understanding and of recognition of exactly what you said, that we are penalizing and crushing our kids and our grandkids. And we apparently don't give a flying crap, Scott. And that's discouraging. Uh, that's Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton spectator. Have a good show, Scott. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. 
to have the last word. This email from Barb in Belleville on the carbon tax being revenue neutral. Hi, Scott. I disagree. At the very least, the GST we all pay on the carbon tax is a revenue generator for the feds, and it is substantial. Cheers. Barb in Belleville. Keep right except to pass. 